You are now listening to the Let's Watch 2 podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Let's Watch 2 podcast, a podcast with aspirations of discovering the ultimate double feature. My name is Sam, I'm your host and joining me today is Fend, Fend? friend and fellow film enthusiast Elliot. If you haven't checked out the first couple of episodes of the show in which Elliot was a co-host then I highly recommend listening to those and if you're not aware Elliot is a YouTube superstar within the film slash boutique Blu-ray collecting community in which he covers film-related news, film recommendations, as well as reviews, and has kindly agreed to uh, come back on for another show to delve into another double feature pairing, with this episode being a uh, sci-fi themed. So welcome back, Elliot. Oh, thanks for having me. I, I've got to say, I've never been called a superstar in any context before, so that's a first for me. First time for everything? <laughs> Yeah, so welcome back. Um, so this show will focus on the 1977 film directed by Steven Spielberg, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and the uh, 2016 film um, directed by Denis Villeneuve. I'm never sure how to pronounce that. Is that right? Or is that how you understand this? Yeah, I think that's right. I, I mean, Denis Villeneuve. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm no expert, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. and his film uh, Arrival. Uh, so if you're new here, the format of the show will be to discuss two films, at first individually and then together as a pairing with the similarities and differences noted and the strength of the film as a double feature debated. So as normal, before jumping into discussing uh, the, the focus of the, ep of the show, we like to ease ourselves in by discussing a little bit about some of the films we've been watching recently. So uh, Elliot, what, uh, what have you been watching recently? Um... I've been watching quite a lot of Criterion films as per usual because um, <laughs> I, I finally got my delivery um, from the Barnes and Noble sale. So cool. I, I got 12, I think it's 12 different things. Um, but in particular, I watched um, Portrait of a Lady on Fire for the first time because I know you've been recommending that to me. Mm -hmm. um, and yes, very, very good. <laughs> I've still not like fully um, taken it all in, I think, and I'm, I'm dying to rewatch it already. Yeah, it's one of those ones where you, you could easily just put it on again and enjoy it straight away. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, for me, upon reflection, and I've seen it twice now, it was, it was probably my favourite film of 2019. Um, I absolutely love that film and look forward to delving into it. Yeah. In future re repeated watches. So yeah, I'm glad you enjoyed it. It's one of those visual feast kind of films where you can just like look at every frame and it's just so beautiful looking. But yeah. Um so yeah, I really enjoyed that. Um oh and I, I rewatched um the Nicholas Rogue film Walkabout because I'd just got the the new edition of that. Um and that's a great film as well. Have you have you ever seen it? No, that's one of the few Nick Rogue films that I've not actually seen um but it's been on my watch list for ages i've just never got around to picking it up but um yeah i saw the the video that you produced mm. um sort of comparing it uh, from the criterion to the second site release and uh yeah the second site release looks pretty fantastic so if that's still available i may have to pick that up at some point yeah I'd definitely recommend it and yeah it's just a great film um nicholas rogue is such a 
I don't know how to describe him as a director, but he had such a unique way of looking at things. Um, I think we've talked about Don't Look Now before. Mm-hmm. And like yeah, ju- yeah. just the way he films certain stories is probably different to how any other director would tackle it. Um, you, you definitely see that in Walkabout as well. Um, beyond that, what else have I watched? Um, in a totally different direction, I watched Charlie's mm-hmm. Angels, you know, the 2000 film. So the one with, oh, okay. the one with like Lucy Liu and Drew Barrymore and stuff. <laughs> Cameron Diaz yeah. and Bill Murray's in that, isn't he? Yeah, Bill Murray's in it. Um, who else is in it? Um, Sam Rockwell. Is it is it uh, the first one or the second one that's got Chris Crispin Glover in? Uh, he's in the first one as well, yeah. He is in the first one, yeah. yeah. And uh, t- t- creepy guy with the hair. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> Tim Curry's in it. Um, oh, I completely I, forgot about I was, that. I was actually amazed at the cast that, <laughs> that was in it. Um, as a film, I mean, it's it's kind of like just... Uh, it's not a great film, I'll say that. Yeah. But it's very easy to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just like, it's a lot of fun as well. Yeah, there's there's a place for those type of films for sure. Yeah. Like you're not expecting the greatest cinema, but it's easy to watch. And overall, for the sort of um, experience you're getting, it's just quite fun. Yeah, the thing that struck me the most about that film is the soundtrack is so like vast. There's so many songs in that film, and th- they'll have songs in the film, and they'll just play like ten seconds of the song, and then you never hear <laughs> it throughout the rest of the film. Um, and like the soundtrack has like. It's got like old disco songs and then the film opens with corn, like blind by the corn. And it's just like so, <laughs> nice. bi- so bizarre, really bizarre. Yeah. It's very like, very like 2000s, <laughs> like early 2000s action. Yeah. But it's great. Very of its time. <laughs> yeah. Um, Anything else? Um, I'm trying to think what else of note is sticking out. Um, I watched the documentary Paris is Burning. Have you ever watched that? No, but I do have the uh, Criterion disc of that. Um, yeah, it's all about the ballroom uh, Vogue scene in New York. It's, yeah, very interesting. So, yeah, I think that's all that sticks out. What about you? I've watched a few films of note recently. I um, recently got through my um, Alejandro Hodorowsky's, um, man uh, box set from Arrow Video um and i managed to watch the holy mountain from that set and uh yeah um it's sort of because this director has such a sort of reputation following him i don't really know how to describe it but he's he has a an expectation for shocking and being quite um out of the box with his filmmaking and Mm -hmm. i've been wanting to see some of his films for a long time but I tend to be sort of the one that waits for a really good restoration or Blu-ray disc for, to watch something before I, I'll see it. So I was uh, when this set was announced, I was uh, jumped on the chance to pre-order it, and it arrived. And then I've well, I've only managed to watch Holy Mountain because that was enough for me for a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I definitely want to watch more of his stuff, but um, yeah, Holy Mountain was definitely an experience that I won't ever forget. And uh, I will. Watch, it will be something I'll watch in the future. But I definitely know I'll have to be in the right mindset to put myself through it again. Yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah. I just received that set as well, and uh, I've not seen any of them before. Because, like you, I totally relate to wanting to wait until you can watch a film in really good quality. Um. I know we recently spoke about um 
Crash from David Cronenberg, and that's just been announced. And like you, I've been waiting years to watch that. Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to actually seeing it for the first time. Yeah, me too, for sure. I'm very excited for that. That's one of my most anticipated releases in a long time, that film, because I've watched the, quite a majority of David Cronenberg's work, and he's mm. he's a, he's one of my favourites, and I've just been putting off, you know, buying, like, the, the DVD quality copies of the film out there because it was bound to get around to being restored and put put out on a really good quality eventually and yeah the waiting's paid off so i'm looking forward to that yeah also uh, uh, speaking of cronenberg as well i really like the last episode of this podcast with their uh, amateur filmies oh thanks yeah it's really good hearing you talk about videodrome and they live so, yeah, yeah it was a really good great. conversation yeah i look forward to having those guys on in the future for another another episode um, so from uh, moving on from Alejandro Hodorowsky, one cult director to another, I uh, managed to watch a film by um, Euro cult director Jess Franco by the name of uh, Vampiros Lesbos. Oh, have yeah. you seen this? Yeah, I have. <laughs> did you Did you enjoy it? I, I I did enjoy it, but those those films are a very acquired taste. I think. I think so. It's it's very well shot that film. Yeah, uh, I thought like I can't imagine the budget was very big for it. Um, but obviously, um, what's her name? Soledad Miranda is a very alluring beauty. <laughs> um, yeah. She's she's uh, has a very a, a very big screen presence, and um, yeah, the special features that were on the disc was because uh, um, it's the Severin. I got the Severin one because Severin have got a few UK titles like. Yeah, that I didn't realise were available until um, I saw them on sale on a website, and I was like, "Oh, I'll pick those up because usually Severin you have to import it and stuff." Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so I was pleasantly surprised by that one, and I also managed to get um, another Jess Franco film, which was um, "She Killed in Ecstasy," which has also got Soledad Miranda in. Mm-hmm. I've not watched that one yet, but if it's anything like Vampiros Lesbos, I'm sure I'll enjoy that one um and yeah just franco i think he's got a couple of films that are coming out in that um fu manchu box set from indicator yeah, yeah he does so yeah i'm in, intrigued to see what he's he does with those films um what else have i watched oh i watched a documentary called um you don't know me by jeffrey McHale. it's the um documentary about um uh, what's his name paul verhoven's showgirls oh yeah Yes, uh, and it's really interesting. It's a really good sort of critique of the film. It sort of appraises it as being like a a very flawed masterpiece, but it doesn't gush over the film. It's not just like this film is amazing. It also points out the huge flaws it has. So it's a very much of a an appraisal, yet um, a critique of the film, but um, sort of like interviews various different people who absolutely adore it and who, it, since it's come out of like really enjoy it and think it's like the perfect sort of trashy masterpiece if that makes sense yeah have you seen showgirls before no i've seen bits of it but i've never seen it in full yeah it's it's a mess it's uh, one of those films that i can understand why it has a cult following but it's one of those films that's more interesting to talk about and to sort of um dissect than it is to watch i think but um it's it's definitely worth watching i think yeah Um, I i feel really sorry for um I forget her name, Jessie from Saved by the Bell. You know, she's oh Elizabeth girl. Berkeley. Yeah, I feel really sorry for her because I think she was expecting her career to like really take off um, with that film, and then it just <laughs> just went nowhere. And then she didn't really make anything. Yeah, 
I think she since has embraced the film um, because what else can you do? Like the, the film does have a huge fan base. Yeah. And uh, I think over time, like the wounds have healed and she now sort of is acclaimed her role in that film, mm -hmm. and, which is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. And then another fun film that I watched similar to Charlie's Angels for you, which is a more of a modern one, is Zombieland uh, 2 Double Tap. Oh, I've never seen those films. Uh, the first one was quite good. It came, I think it came out like 10 years ago or, stuff, yeah. or something. It was one of the first, um, one of the earlier sort of Jesse Eisenberg and Emma Stone roles. And it's also got Woody Harrison in it. But yeah, the sequel um, just sort of put on one evening uh, last week. And it was it was quite fun. Um, I wouldn't really recommend it, but it was... Uh, it was a it was a good time. It got a lot of bad sort of um, critical reception, which I didn't think was overly deserved, um, but did have plot points uh, that were a bit lacking in the writing. But it was it was just fun. It had some good one liners and some awesome sort of zombie killing action in it. So that was good. So um, I'm still yet. So this is normally what I, my notes I've got in front of me. This will be the bit in the show where. I would respond to any emails that any listeners may have sent in, but we're still yet to get any emails in from anyone. And I know we've got quite a number of listeners from sort of like the analytics and the website and stuff. So there's quite a lot of visitors and a lot of listeners out there. So just this is sort of like a, uh, but like a, a plea for anyone who's listening, who's yeah. enjoying this to email in, to tell us what you think about the show. If you have any sort of recommendations for, any future double features that you want us to listen uh, to focus on on the show and uh yeah so but there isn't any so i'm not going to talk about those <laughs> yeah come so on come on guys you gotta get some on, get guys. some emails in <laughs> <laughs> okay so uh let's start off with as usual um the film uh, for this pairing that was um produced first so that is 1977's A Close Encounters of a Third Kind, directed by Steven Spielberg. So, tagline for the film is, We are not alone. And just a brief letterbox, letterbox description. After an, an encounter with UFOs, a line worker feels undeniably drawn to an isolated area in the wilderness where something spectacular is about to happen. So, Elliot... When was the first time you watched Close Encounters and what did you think of it? Well, I'm sure I must have seen this as a child because like I have so many memories of particular bits in this film. Um, but I haven't really watched it since being like a big film fan these last few years. So actually watching it for this podcast was like seeing it totally anew. But yeah, I'm sure I must have seen it as a child because I can remember... Uh, just certain images and scenes like the one that really stuck out to me was um you know when they're on the the road in the hills and then the, the ufos fly directly over them and the and the police car like goes <laughs> over the the edge of the cliff like yeah I, I remember that so distinctly but to be honest the rest of the film i couldn't remember so i must have seen it as a child but i, I can't really pinpoint when yeah, so the first, I'm going to echo similar to what you just said. The first time I saw it would have been on like VHS about 20 years ago. And there are some images that stick out to me, um, particularly seeing like the, the alien type creatures at the end mm -hmm. when they come off the ship and uh, the scene where the little boy opens the door to the house and you have that bright red 
light, which is quite an iconic, iconic image from the yeah. film. So there's quite a few images that sort of stuck with me. But yeah, I couldn't really remember too much about the ins and outs of the plot or anything like that. So yeah, similar to you, since I've been like super into film, I hadn't seen this. So I was quite looking forward to delving into one of uh, Spielberg's earlier films and seeing how it stood up to uh, today's sort of standards and stuff. And uh, yeah, I was um, I was quite impressed with it. And uh, yeah, it's a film that's not probably as ubiquitous as other sci-fi films of the era like Star Wars or even um, sort of Spielberg's other work like E.T. and things like that. But it's uh, it got quite a lot of critical acclaim at the time when it came out. And this this film, how old is it now? Four, 43 years old? Yeah. Yeah. So, and um, yeah, I think it's uh, it's going to be really interesting to to talk about this one. I think um, yeah. some of the themes that are running through it and stuff, um, I definitely wouldn't have picked up on when I was a child watching no, it. Definitely not. I, I was going to say that. I imagine a lot of people probably have seen this like on TV or on VHS or DVD as a child, but it's not really a good film for a child, I think, because there's a lot of there's a lot of talking and dialogue and mm -hmm. th there's a lot of ideas that a child totally wouldn't get. Like a film like E.T. is much more for families and children, I think. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. So yeah, the, like, watching this this time, there's so much that I, I didn't even know was in the film. So yeah. So um, this is going to be a really silly question for um, two cinephiles to, be t to do talk about, but like, how familiar are you with Spielberg's other work, Elliot? <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm quite familiar, although I'm going to say, <laughs> yeah. you know, Spielberg has made a lot of films. He does, a lot of films. There's, there's quite a lot that I haven't actually seen. Like, um, so I'm just trying to think of films off the top of my head, like that he's made, because I bet some people have seen a lot of his films and may not know that he made them mm. so like he made um just trying to think of things sort of my head so he's made like minority report um ai uh saving private ryan yeah. shinder's list um he made jurassic uh, recently park. jurassic park of course jaws, jaws. Yeah. we mentioned et yeah. um what's he made recently ready player one yeah um he made that film with daniel day lewis um Lincoln, Lincoln yeah all the yeah. Indiana Jones films oh of course how can you forget that um, exactly so he has a very storied career yeah um but yeah there's uh there's quite a number there's a few other of his films that I haven't seen like yourself I haven't seen Empire of the Sun yeah I've not seen that one or Munich I've not seen that one no me neither I've not seen or, um there's ones like The Terminal I've not seen that Oh, I've seen that one, yeah, with Tom Hanks. Yeah, I've not seen The Colour Purple. Oh, that's a really good film. Yeah. I'd highly recommend that one. I've not seen the BFG as well that he did with uh, no. Mark Rylance. No, I've not seen that either. It didn't really appeal to me, no. to be honest. <laughs> and I've still, I've still never seen uh, 1941, which is meant to be his big, his big flop. Yeah, me neither. I'm not seeing anything like pre-Jaws, like um, Jewel and the Sugarland Express, I think yeah. the film's called. I've seen Jewel, and Jewel is actually a very, very good film. It's kind of like okay. it's kind of like Jaws, but if instead of a oh. shark, it was a big truck. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I, I really, really like Jewel, actually. It's a great oh. like, first feature has it got, film. Has it got a good, like, um, release, like Blu-ray or um, it's, it's just got, like, a standard release, but... It looks pretty good, I think. 
Oh, cool. Nice. I'll yeah. have to pick that up at some point. Um, yeah, so just a little bit on Spielberg. He's, um, yeah, obviously a director that even non-film enthusiasts or cinephiles would, would know the name of and could at least name a few of his films. Um, for instance, like E.T. and Jurassic Park and things like that. Um, and he sort of broke out in the seventies along with a lot of, uh, with a, a number of other directors, uh, in what was like known as new Hollywood era, uh, when sort of American cinema was changing, um, sort of directors like Martin Scorsese, Brian De Palma, Francis Ford Coppola, sort of to name a few of the big hitters at the time, they, um, were just making, making different films and changing the way that sort of cinema was, uh, being consumed by people and uh yeah and this is one of his sort of po post yours but pre-indiana jones films that had great critical and commercial success a lot, a lot along with a lot of other um spielberg films of that time where do you want to start off to talk about this film <laughs> I, I don't know to be honest um i will mention one thing that I noticed that has a, there's a similarity between uh, how this film starts with um, Kubrick's 2001: A Space Odyssey. Yeah, the film starts off with a completely black screen with music playing, although in 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 2001 it's sort of like a very extended time for like it's, I think it's minutes in 2001 when you get the overture, and uh, yeah, the scene's completely black, but in this it, i think it lasts for like five or six seconds but the screen is black and then you have some dramatic mu music playing which i think was i think it was a nod to 2001 mm. can't be sure but i'm sure that um, spielberg was a fan of that film and was influenced in some capacity so um that was the first thing that i noticed yeah and then when the um the credits were um rolling um something i definitely wouldn't have noticed when i was um a young child was the the name of the dp oh yeah is yeah is vilmos sigmund who yeah. has photographed some fantastic films like mccabe and mrs miller by robert altman he did the deer hunter which is one of my favorite films um blowout and uh, deliverance just to name a few of the mm -hmm. films that he's worked on and i and i had no idea that he photographed this film before putting it on for this podcast and so i saw the name come up and i was like oh this film's gonna look great that's so yeah. you automatically get the, the feeling and and then and then doing some research on it i realized that he actually won the academy award for best cinematography for this film at the, oh, uh, at the yeah the academy awards which i thought was thoroughly deserved because one of my i do have some uh faults of this film which we'll discuss later but one of the things i do think stands out in this film is the way it looks mm -hmm. particularly like how they've restored it for the, the 4k disc that i watched it is it is a very nice film to look at and um yeah yeah one of the things um well speaking of the 4k i only watched the old blu-ray because i didn't get the the 4k disc in time um so i, I do want to check out the 4k version at some point um but looking at the uh, credits i noticed that there are actually three dps that worked on the film because a lot all of the desert sequences were shot by a different dp oh that's interesting and then, and then there were someone was credited as being the dp for additional american sequences and i don't know what that means in terms of the film um, okay so it's like second unit third unit type thing yeah it must be yeah but it'd, it'd be interesting to know which 
I imagine a lot of the more intimate, um, like character-driven scenes were all shot by Vilma Sigmund. Um, so like that famous shot of the red light coming into the house and things like yeah. that. Um, and there was a lot of use of t- talking about the cinematography of like, um, I, I don't know what it's called where they would overlay two sequences, two shots together to form like an, uh, an effect. So like, for example, towards the end when, um, they're in the Rocky mountain and they're looking down at the, the base, the army base, mm-hmm. um, that that shot of the army bases it was one particular shot and then them being in the rocks is another and they've been spliced together i don't know what that effect's called no me neither but that makes sense with regards to some of the special effects in this film um masterminded by the brilliant douglas trumbull mm. um i don't know if you're aware of like some of the work he's done but he is sort of like a, a master of special effects um particularly in like science fiction and space sort of stuff yeah he also made some films in his own right but he did work did a lot of work on special effects like he did the special effects for the tree of life for terence malick oh right yeah and he's I, just I, uh, I know he did 2001 didn't he yeah yeah and yeah so um but the way i was thinking to myself when i was watching the film there's the scene we're going to jump straight into talking about plot points here but it's fine there's uh the scene where the alien uh, ships are coming down to the devil's tower and the sort of the clouds start rolling around the mountain you know they start f- like bur- f- i don't know what the word is but almost like a t- storm in in uh speeded up like it's been filmed and then sped up as it's like moving in sort of thing i don't know how to describe it very well but that was done by um filming a sort of like a bath to a, a a bath or something with a clear screen on the front and then putting like paint and then billowing it through so it looks like clouds in the sky like moving quickly and then that's obviously been superimposed on on the the shot below of like the mountain and the alien ships and stuff so i thought that is absolutely fantastic how they spliced those together quite seamlessly to be honest especially for the time in 77 or in 76 when it was the film was made i was like very impressed with it and so i did some research and uh found out exactly how um mr trumbull did that and it was uh, super impressive and i was very very awesome to look at yeah because you see that as well in the scene where i forget the characters names in this film but where the boy has just been abducted and the, the mother runs out of the house barry into- the kid's called barry oh is he <laughs> <laughs> yeah um well yeah when barry runs out um and and you see the sky and the clouds like you Mm -hmm. just described so that that's been like added added onto the shot um there's a name for that effect where it's two things spliced together but i can't can't remember at the moment okay and then there's uh the opening scene of the film that that sort of starts in the desert i'm not exactly sure which desert it is but that we have these um planes that have appeared out of nowhere that seemingly went missing several years earlier but there's no crew on board and then the whole sort of or a very major theme of the film is basically conveyed in a scene where there's an interpreter speaking to someone who witnessed these like planes coming back 
and uh, this i think it's in mexico because the, the guy speaks in spanish and then there's an interpreter there who speaks to the spanish guy who then uh translates it into english and then the english is then uh, transferred uh translated into french which is all to do with sort of your, your linguistics and your, and your languages and what would then go on to be uh, a, a plot point of how sort of the scientists and the army and everything are trying to communicate with the aliens. It's all about translating and trying to understand what everyone's saying and meaning and things like that. And I thought that was a really good way of without bogging down the story in sort of saying this film is about not being able to understand one another and things like that. It was just a really quick scene that lasts like 30 seconds, but just beautifully and elegantly just sort of describes everything that's going to an and furl in this film which i thought was really well handled and the uh the french guy is played <laughs> yeah. by francois truffaut that french guy yeah <laughs> yeah, Fran yeah. Uh, the, <laughs> which i i completely didn't know he was in it as well and i was like that's francois truffaut that's that's strange but yeah he's in it and uh yeah <laughs> yeah it's kind of crazy that he's in it and I, I don't know how that happened or how it came about yeah did you um did you notice or get a feeling that although this film, like, as I mentioned, is a lot of it is about like communication and technology, that there is a, a quite, quite strong religious undertones to this, or am I just imagining things? Um, I, I guess I didn't really pick that up, but yeah, cause yeah, go around. Um, yeah, now that I think about it, it does make sense. I know there's that bit towards the end when, is it the the people that have just come off the spaceship and they've been abducted and there's a priest like giving them a a service or something yeah the, the but the way i i interpreted it was that like roy um played brilliantly by richard dreyfus i think is how you pronounce mm. his surname um he is um he essentially has that close encounter where he's in the truck and the effects on that scene are really good as well where everything seems to slow down and sort of levitate and gets that sort of half face sunburn and yeah that that to me was sort of like the aliens were sort of like a god figure mm. and they'd sort of impassed onto him some sort of message or truth that he needed to learn, learn more about and that's that's what sort of um sparks his journey to try and figure out the the information that he's been given and what it all means yeah and that was sort of like comparable to sort of I'm really going to ramble here a little bit, I feel, but um, it's sort of like God being the aliens delivering a message to Moses yeah, and then how he has to sort of take his pilgrimage to Mount Sinai, which is then a, replaced in the film by Devil's Tower in Wyoming. And it's just about, yeah, just like almost like a religious pilgrimage. That's how I interpreted it anyway. Yeah. No, that, does that, that make any sense? No, that, that, it really does make sense, actually. Because I guess a lot of um, UFO sightings have always been interpreted by some people as like very biblical, like the burning th the burning tree in the Bible, mm -hmm. like yeah. a message from God. Um, yeah, so no, that totally does make sense. Um, and I feel cool. I feel, stu I feel stupid for not recognizing that. <laughs> no, I think it was quite subtle, but then there was the. There's, I was just trying to think. Oh, there's all. Oh, that's that's one thing I did notice in the on one of the films that's playing 
um, in the background on the, one of the televisions in the, in the house when they're like eating dinner or whatnot is the Ten Commandments. And I was like, okay, there must be a reason why that's been put in here. Like, surely it's not just the film that was on the television in the background while they were filming the, the film. So I was thought, well, what, is there some sort of subtext of here to do with like religion in some capacity? And then when I started piecing things together, I thought, well, yeah, he's been sort of had a, a close encounter with aliens, which could you could uh, interpret as being like uh, being spoken to or by God or something like that, or some deity of some description. And then from this experience, he then is on a mission to learn more. And uh, yeah, so that's what I got from it anyway. <laughs> yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I'm, I'm going to use that now in, in future conversations about this film. <laughs> yeah. Did you know that A Close Encounters of the Third Guy is a religious and uh, yeah. like analogy? And like, no, it's not. Of course it's not. It's a science fiction film about aliens coming to land on Earth. And yeah. it's like, ah, but did you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess um, something that just reminded me of another film was how the film begins in the desert. Mm -hmm. Whenever a film begins in the desert, I'm always reminded of The Exorcist. Uh, yeah, and cool. I, I guess a lot of films do this where they, they set up some kind of exposition in the desert and something is found in the desert. So in this case, it's those planes. Um, and in the, in the Exorcist, obviously, it's the statue of the, the demon, Pazuzu. Mm -hmm. um, and it's always like a kind of foreshadowing of there being some other thing that we're not aware of. And by setting it in the desert, it feels very remote. It almost feels alien, you know, being in the middle yeah. of the desert. Um, uh, I also thought this, this is going off on a tangent now, but um, the film Uncut Gems, that begins in the desert. And I think that yeah. is directly taken from The Exorcist, how okay. the, in The Exorcist, they find this statue that obviously unleashes this curse. Mm -hmm. um, and in Uncut Gems, it's the... The people, I can't, I can't remember where the desert is, but they're mining the, the special diamond gem thing. Um, and obviously that brings a curse upon uh, Adam Sandler's character. So yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they took that from The Exorcist, but maybe that's me reading too much into deserts in film. But yeah, that's, that's, no, no. that's the end of my tangent. <laughs> no, no, that was a nice tangent. I, I do like a good tangent, especially, yeah, I know I didn't make that or think about that connection but um yeah that's that's so true about um starting off your exposition scene or having the film start off in a location that's sort of alien but something we're all we're familiar with but it's just like there's barely any life in the desert and things like that so yeah it's almost and, a very alien place in itself yeah and going off that and i think this is relevant to both of the films we're talking about is that any film that's about ufos or alien visitations it something like that would be a global event so it's important to have you know multiple countries and nationalities represented in the story because you know i can't think of any off the top of my head but when a story is just very american centric and it's about ufos mm -hmm. well that doesn't make sense because if ufos came to earth it would be a massive global event um, so you see that in both of these films that we're talking about. So it's, I think that's always important when discussing these kind of stories. Yeah, I agree. Ultimately, um, 
this film is the the follows the sort of the quest for um roy to just uh get more information it's like a quest for knowledge because he's just consumed by what his experience was and uh, just finding out more and he drives his family absolutely insane with putting taking all the all the plants out of the beds around the house and chucking them into the house that scene like if you were a child and your father did that you'd be traumatized yeah. like literally shoveling dirt into the house and throwing bricks into it but like trying to make it out as if i'm saying this is all normal and then he sort of starts sculpting this really awesome um model of what would become um the devil's tower yeah and um yeah i found that really quite like not troubling but I, th I don't know how the scene is meant to be played out whether it's meant to be we're supposed to be rooting for him to find the knowledge or to find what what he's um like searching for or whether we're supposed to be sympathizing with the family mm. because they're they're like the wife and the children are clearly not having a great time with their dad seemingly going insane because yeah. he does appear if you didn't know that he'd been in in contact with aliens you would be like you need to be need to see some professional help because what you're doing is very abnormal but the, i don't know how the film is trying to communicate these these things because at one point you're like oh i want oh, as a viewer you want to know what's going on why the aliens are here what they want you know what they're trying to communicate but then you're feeling for the sort of the that's on the macro scale but on the the micro scale you want to make sure that he's gonna look after his family and be there for his wife and children and by the end of the film he he deserts them yeah <laughs> but so that, that's again i don't know if it's a fault of the film but i know that spielberg said that if he had made this film after he had children because he didn't have any children at the point when he first made this that he would have made the ending different Mm, he wouldn't imagine. have had roy yeah he wouldn't have had roy go into the spaceship he would have been satisfied with um seeing everything and then seemingly he would have gone back to his wife and children and sort of maybe i don't know lived out his days as normally as he could but obviously in the film um by the way this is spoiler for everyone but this film came out in 1977 so <laughs> can't really spoil that too much yeah. but yeah he he uh gets on the ship with the aliens and seemingly just goes off into the cosmos with them mm. completely ignoring that he has three young children and a wife at home and it's just so bizarre oh, like no. the film se seems to play out it's like a triumphant sort of yay he got what he wanted he's like his quest for knowledge is going to be fulfilled yet he's like abandoned his duty as a father and a husband and all those things and it's just quite sad like, when i finish it because like, it's all this the spectacle of seeing everything is magnificent especially that um five note tune which i can't remember although when i watched it it was in my head for a, <laughs> like yeah. a few days afterwards um a, a great score by john williams as well frequent collaborator of um spielberg mm -hmm. um but um yeah the that whole scene with the the communicating between each other with like the the guy on the keyboard and then it's sort of like being displayed like in colors on a on a big sort of projection board and then the aliens and the ship start talking back it's all very fantastic 
and that's but that's on the sort of the global scale of everything but then when you look at everything on a, on, a, on a micro scale like on a individual personal emotional basis it's mm. just a very i find it quite tragic personally that yeah. this man has been consumed by this so much that he's willing to sort of forget his family and uh yeah that's my thoughts on that yeah it's, it, i totally agree like it doesn't really sit right the ending and i don't really know yeah. what, what we're meant to take away from it um kind of reminds me again going off on something else have you seen toy story 4 yeah yeah it, it that ending struck me similar to how close encounters strikes me because at the end of that woody ends up going off with bo peep and he leaves behind all of his friends and family including buzz and like all of his you know who have been his family for like ever um, yeah and that, i was just like why why would he do that why would he leave behind his family just i am i'm in agreement there yeah. that's one of my, I, I really enjoyed that film for the most part but yeah that that ending was one that i was like hmm yeah, and I, and I, like, didn't I, like that. I didn't like that too much. <laughs> no, I, and I don't get what the message is meant to be because those films are all about family and and being a team. Um, and much like Close Encounters, he's just basically leaving behind um, everything he's kind of built his life for, I guess. But that's a whole that's a whole aside. <laughs> yeah, we have a whole podcast about that, I suppose. Yeah. Um, I've got a great theory about, I won't go into it now, but about how in the Toy Story universe there's evidence that God doesn't exist and it's a very like atheistic universe, but I, I won't go into that now. <laughs> I was uh, almost... We, we, we uh, can discuss that off, off mic. Yeah, because yeah, at one point I was almost <laughs> going to do like a video essay about it. Um, okay. Because like I'd written loads of notes and writings about evidence for this, but yeah, that's for a different time talking of toy story another aside sorry listeners we might get a few asides <laughs> today um there's a fantastic video on youtube of a um you may have seen it but it's like a, a really young girl who's like a really big fan of the toy story films and uh, this uh, her parents like film her like leaving her bedroom but then like peeping around the door to see if her toys start to come to life <laughs> and it's absolutely adorable but it's just the magic of films like at that young age but even as an adult but like seeing that is uh it's quite special yeah um, and i remember that i remember because i was i was first toy story is 95 yes yeah. i think yeah so i was seven when that came out it's showing my age now but um yeah i was seven when that came out and i remember going to this to the theater to see it and um cut the first thing i did when i went home when i was when i went home into my bedroom my toys was thinking do these come to life when i'm not in the room yeah and it's just such a magical feeling to sort of think back on like how you perceive the world at a certain age and stuff is is quite special yeah it reminds me um i used to always think that as well that my toys would come to life because mm -hmm. I, I used to be obsessed with this film called small soldiers do you know this film? oh mate yeah. <laughs> i love that film i was obsessed with it i used to rent it repeatedly from blockbuster i don't know why i didn't just buy it on vhs but yeah I'd, i've seen that film so many times me too i had the um I had the archer figure and i wore out its uh, talk box <laughs> where go, hi uh, i'm archer leader of the gorgonites yeah and uh yeah um 
Yeah, I love that film. Yeah, it's. Uh, I haven't seen it for years. No, I don't even know if it's got like a, a good Blu-ray release. I don't know if I want to watch it because it might spoil my uh, <laughs> my memory of it. Yeah. So I don't know if it's that great of a film, but it's something I definitely enjoyed as a child. Mm. And tying yeah. it back to Close Encounters, there's a scene where the toys come to life, isn't there? We you know when the UFOs there is. flying over. Yeah. So yeah, yeah it all yeah. connects, doesn't it? It does. It all comes full circle. There's um yeah that that child um the character Barry I don't know if anyone would call their child Barry in this day and age no that that's probably what but, dates the film the most is a child called Barry <laughs> someone's got to be called Barry yeah um but yeah that that child um some of his reactions were like I guess because he was so young he wasn't really I guess he was acting obviously but I know that Spielberg used props and stuff behind the camera mm. and and off off screen to like get certain reactions out of the, out of the child so there's a scene when the child's in the car and he can see the spaceships and stuff i think and then um he starts to say toys toys like because he thinks like the alien ships and stuff are like playthings, mm. and spielberg basically was like showing like toy cars from behind the camera like sort of enticing him like an like a dog or something to try and get him to do something and he was said all these things um which i thought was pretty cool yeah and yeah that that, that child was known as uh, i think i can't remember the child's name now the actor but they never had to every single take with that kid was once and done they didn't have to redo any right so he was known as like one take whatever the child's name was it'd be better if i knew what the kid's name was in real life uh, but they are like spielberg is it carrie or yeah carrie, or... Ca carrie guffey i've got it that's the me. one yeah. yeah so spielberg made all these t-shirts for people on set to wear because he'd done the kid had done so many like takes like one takes and then they were done and we're like this kid's amazing like we don't we every single shot we get it perfect first time which mm. is probably not normal for child actors and then like Spielberg made these t-shirts and stuff to for the castaway for that said like one take um guffin and whatnot that which I thought was pretty cool. So any other thoughts on Close Encounters? Um trying to think what struck me. Um I guess just in terms of the the way the story is structured it's quite strange because there isn't really much of an antagonist or any like antagonistic force and there's not really much conflict in the film is there no i guess it's just the whole mystery element of everything i yeah. guess yeah and i guess there's like people not believing him or thinking he's crazy um but yeah there's not like compared to arrival which we're going to talk about in there there's very clearly certain antagonistic people in that story mm -hmm. that pe the, the the protagonists are trying to work against but in this there isn't really and it's and, and when you get to the climax of this film there's very much um like a sense of wonder and a, like a, a a collectivist kind of um like everyone's working towards the same goal there's no like conflict at all yeah it just seems that everyone's come together across yeah. the world to to for the for the same purpose really yeah whereas obviously we'll talk about an arrival there seems to be some sort of breakdown in communication between the nations based on 
uh, events that are unfolding. So it's, a, it's an interesting um, sort of difference and comparison between the two films. Yeah, and it's strange that it works because that's something that people in script writing courses are taught not to do. Like you have to have a clear antagonist and you have to have conflict set up throughout the film. But this film is very much spare of that. There's not a lot of that going on. Yeah, definitely. I think, is this the only film that Spielberg wrote? Oh, and obviously he's directed loads. Yeah, I don't, oh, don't know look, actually. Let me just look that up. I think it may be one of the only films that he's, he's actually written. Apparently he wrote... Th- he wrote the Goonies. Did he? Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah, it's got him. Oh down. yeah, I've just, I've just, I've just got it up now. Yeah, he did. He wrote the Goonies. He wrote the story. He didn't write the screenplay, but the overall sort of thing of the film. Um. Yeah, Close Encounters. Oh, he wrote Poltergeist. Yeah. But he didn't direct that one, obviously. Yeah, but That's apparently people think he did direct it, don't they? <laughs> yeah. Um. But yeah, he's. Uh, He's not written much. Oh, he wrote AI, but yeah. that would have been sort of based on Kubrick's stuff. Yeah, that was previously made before it. But oh, yeah, one interesting thing that I remember—I didn't actually write it down my notes because I've I've just forgotten. But um, even though Spielberg took sort of sole writing credits for this film, which um, I'm not sure how I feel about that. There was many contributors to the plot and uh, various different script writing elements of this. Um, Paul Schrader. Uh, contributed to the story oh right yeah just a little tidbit very interesting yeah because on letterboxd it's got five writers yeah but um yeah he he took sole writing credits for it like with regards to like um sort of um award season and things like that yeah interesting yeah so where would you rank this among spielberg's other work um that's that's tough because because he's got so many films um i don't know because he's he's such a diverse filmmaker as well um i don't think it would be you know up at the top for me it's probably somewhere in the middle if i was ranking yeah yeah me too yeah what are some of your favorites of his my favorite well it's not yeah if I was to make a list, which I do all the time, of my <laughs> favourite films or like genre and things like that, like if I was to make a solid film of like uh, well, a solid film list of say my top one hundred films of all time, uh, there would be definitely one of uh, um, Spielberg's films in there, which is Jurassic Park. Yeah, I absolutely love that film. It's a film that I loved in my childhood, and it's a film that I still enjoy as much today. Um, although I would put it in my top hundred films, it'd probably be at the, the the lower end of the top hundred. Yeah. So I wouldn't regard it as one of my all time favorite films, but in some ways, I I consider it to almost be like a perfect film. It's one of those films that I can't really fault it for anything, like the direction, the just the music, the set pieces, the acting, and just everything about it, the script and stuff. It's just I can't fault it for anything, although. You know, it's it's not my favourite film. So it's one of those weird ones where it's a perfect film, but not my favourite. Mm. Um, but yeah, I'd say I'd say Jurassic Park I like more than this. I also probably like the first two Indiana Jones films more than this. Yeah. Um, 
what else uh jaws and et i still probably like more than this as well yeah, same um but yeah some of um his more modern sort of output which hasn't been as uh, as good for me personally um i would put this above that um i think it's a really good sort of science fiction film from the 70s that was fantastic in terms of its um sort of visual um sort of the cinematography and the special effects that were put on screen for the time um and uh, yeah it's directed really well and the music's really good um but yeah i do have some issues with what exactly the message is is, is that's trying to be conveyed that we've just spoke about in, in at length with regards to the ending of this film and what that means for sort of like the family unit and things like that um but yeah i'd say middle of the road for spielberg but there are better and uh, but i've definitely seen worse films and but I, as, as you said i haven't seen all of his uh, all of spielberg's films because he's been making them for so long and some of them quite frankly i'm not that interested in seeing of his of his newer output um but yeah the ones i have seen i'd say yeah middle of the road it was good um i think i i generally on letterboxd i don't give star ratings for things unless i'm really certain on what i feel about it because sometimes it takes me forever just to think well how good is this is it better than this is it less is it not as good as this and i can sit there for ages just thinking about star rating so normally i just either say i've watched it and don't leave like a like heart on it or i leave a light heart, heart on it to say that yeah that was a film i enjoyed yeah um and i did i did put a heart for this one and i gave it three three and a half stars out of five i think yeah I'd, I'd, mainly because i'd give it yeah. around that yeah yeah mainly because of its technical achievements and sort of sort of how iconic it is and sort of the films that followed it that allowed to take from it if you know what i mean its influences um but yeah i do have issues with the some of the plot um, elements with regards to Roy's um, quest for knowledge and his leaving his family and I'm not sure exactly what that's trying to say about anything but really interested to see if any listeners out there want to give their input into what they feel or what they think the ending of the film means and whether Roy was a good guy or he was just um, a victim of his circumstance really because obviously he's has it's almost like he had a mental illness to to get the quest to fulfill his uh, quest for knowledge basically he was just all consumed by it and maybe it wasn't his fault that he abandoned his wife and children but yeah it just didn't sit right with me personally but yeah it's i did enjoy it and i could see myself revisiting it in in, in quite a number of years down the line but it's something i could watch again mm. um but yeah I, I i did enjoy it and but yeah middle of the road for me for spielberg films yeah i'd, I'd agree like I, I really like Jurassic Park as well. That's definitely up at the top for me. Um, I'm also a big fan of artificial intelligence as well, which I know a lot of people don't like. I don't like that film don't very you? much. No, no. I really enjoy the first thirty to forty minutes of it, mm. where um, Haley Joel Osment's character is like it's been adopted by the family, and it's the the whole sort of dynamic of loving a like a child that isn't real and trying to replace a lost child because obviously they they lose their child and try and what well, they're the child's in a coma or something yeah i can't quite remember and they basically want that sort of uh, 
sort of personal thing in their life to love and look after and then obviously they when they get it the, the child's very like robotic in its emotions and is almost perf too perfect um, and I really love that sort of the way that film starts but then when the child is sort of abandoned and then is on his on his journey to sort of meet his makers and things like that it's where the film falls apart for me personally I've only seen the film once um, and I'm always up for revisiting things because um, I've said multiple times on different platforms that my some of my favorite films are films that I didn't connect with or really enjoy that much on first viewing but there was some things about it that made me want to revisit it mm. and then they end up being some of my favorite films and something with it clicks with me and then i end up loving them which i think is a very weird thing in itself like i can understand why some people may watch something and if they didn't like it they'll be like i'm never watching that again because i didn't like it so why would you go back and spend two two and a half hours re-watching something when the first time you watched it you thought it was rubbish yeah but it's just a weird concept and I don't quite know what, what it is, but I guess in different points of your life, you get different things from films and experiences contribute to how you interpret things and stuff. So that's another aside for another day for another podcast. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Cool. Any final thoughts on Close Encounters before we move no, on to Arrival? No, I think we've pretty much covered everything. Okay, so we'll just take uh, a few minutes break, guys, and then we'll be back to talk about um, the 2016 film Arrival, directed by Denis Villeneuve. Back in a minute, guys. Welcome back to the second part of the Let's Watch 2 podcast where we are discussing um, the 1977 film Close Encounters of a Third Kind uh, directed by Steven Spielberg and uh, the 2016 film Arrival directed by Denis Villeneuve. So the second part we're going to be discussing Arrival uh, stars uh, Amy Adams, Jeremy Renner, Forrest Whitaker and the tagline for the film is, why are they here? Letterbox description. Taking place after alien crafts land around the world, an expert linguist is recruited by the military to, term to determine whether they come in peace or they are a threat. So I have one thing to say about that description. The aliens never land on Earth. They don't. They're always floating above something like land sea wherever and i think that's on purpose like because if they one if they're sort of hovering above the surface of the earth it sort of forces humanity to take the conversation to them if that makes any sense i think that was an intentional choice to never have the aliens actually set foot as such or actually their aircraft never actually touches the land on earth itself that's just an observation and maybe a little aside but yeah uh so yeah <laughs> when when did you first watch arrival earlier and what did you think so i was lucky enough to see it in the cinema when it came out um so i think i saw it first day when it came out here 
uh, and I, I loved it. Like at the time, I'd say I'd been on my film journey for about a year or two at this point. So I'd seen a lot of films by this point, but yes, yeah, it really blew me away. Um, I don't think I'd seen anything like it in terms of story structure and then also how it handles, um, you know, alien uh, encounters. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, so like you, I saw it at the cinema. I, <clears throat> excuse me. I don't think I saw it on the first day of release. You keep beating me to the po to the post on those sorts of things. When we discussed <laughs> Phantom Thread, you were like, I think you said you were queuing up from like three o'clock in the morning to be front of the queue or something to see that film, right? <laughs> <laughs> not not quite, but yeah, I didn't see it. Similar. <laughs> yeah. So um uh yeah, so I saw it, it must have been the first week or so of it coming out. And this was my introduction to uh Denis Villeneuve's work. Um I sort of heard of him because uh, I think Prisoners came out a few years before this. Mm -hmm. And um um, I was aware of um, sort of uh, on D, but I'd never got around to watching it. And uh, yeah, I was pleasantly surprised. And um, it's one of my very favorite science fiction films of ever. I think this is a, a marvelous film that I, I find, find difficulty in finding faults in it, to be honest. Um, so this is the, I think the third time i've seen it so i saw it at cinemas i saw it um on uh home home uh, sort of 4k when it came out a little mm. while ago and then i've sort of rewatched it again ready and ready for this podcast and every time i've watched it it's been as good if in fact i think it's better on repeated viewings because you understand a bit more about what some of the imagery is conveying to you on first viewing you don't you don't quite know until you get to the end of the story but um yeah the uh the film is 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 very very good and i uh it, as soon as the film started and the, there's this fantastic music i think it's called um on the nature of daylight by a guy called max richter yeah and that bit of music is so beautiful like i I get a little bit emotional talking about it now, but that that music is so well paired with some of the imagery and some of the scenes in this film, particularly the beginning one where you see um, Amy Adams' character's daughter growing up and then eventually um, passing away due to an unknown illness. And yeah, that just elevates the scenes that where that bit of music is used so well. And it's, yeah, it's beautiful. And then when you've seen the film and, and then you rewatch it and then you understand what's happening at the beginning with all these, these, these scenes of like a child growing up and being nurtured for, and, um, just all those intimate moments between a parent and a child, it really sort of hit an emotional chord with me. And I was like really taken aback and that, that piece of music is just absolutely beautiful and yeah, it's, uh, it's really good. <laughs> yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, it's been used in quite a lot of films and TV. It has, it has, yeah. I can see yeah. why. <laughs> yeah. So, um, how uh, familiar are, are you with uh, Villeneuve's other work? Mate? Um, I'm, yeah, I'm quite familiar. I think there's maybe only one or two films I've not seen. Um, this wasn't the first one that I'd seen by him. I saw 
uh, Sicario when it came out, which I think came out the year before. Um, and I was blown away when I saw that in the cinema. Mm-hmm. Um, like I remember, have you seen Sicario? Yeah. Yeah. So I remember I went with my brother and we, we had no idea what the film was about. We had no idea who the director was, who the director of photography was. Cause I, you know, I didn't know Roger Deakins back then or, sure, or anything. Yeah. And I went in and I was just blown away for like the whole film. Um, there was a particular point early on in the film, you know, when, um, when they get stuck on the highway in, in the traffic and that scene is so tense. Oh my God. And, uh, <laughs> and it just has that, it has that building music, um, by, uh, Johan Johansson who did, who, he, he did the music for Arrival as well. Um, yeah, I just remember that that scene was so suspenseful and that was just such a great cinema experience. So when I heard that Arrival was coming out, I was so excited for, you know, hopefully a new experience as well. And it, and it was that, like I, when I was watching that film for the first time, I'd never seen anything quite like it. So it definitely blew me away. Yeah. So I've seen, I think I've seen most of his stuff. Um, I have, I don't think I've seen anything pre on Sunday. Yeah. Same. Um, but yeah, everything's, um, post that I've, um, I've managed to watch at least once and I'm really excited for, um, his adaptation of June, Mm -hmm. uh, coming out, which I think should be quite an interesting, uh, watch. I think it's going to be like a two part epic. Hmm um to cover the book which i've never read um but i understand it's 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 got like a very big cult following and um i'm sure he'll do a great job of um doing the uh source material justice yeah so something that i mentioned about um close encounters was that at the beginning of the film it starts with the black screen and a bit of music playing guess what this film also does that too (laughs) (laughs) this film starts off with a black screen for about four or five seconds and although the music isn't as dramatic as what 2001 or um, close encounters is we have that beautiful music by uh, max richter playing um it's it's blackness for yeah like four or five seconds and then the camera pans down from what we would assume to be the ceiling uh, into into the house of amy adams's character and i thought that was just a really good sort of comparison that the all three all of those films have the similar starting point of just yeah. a blank a black screen with nothing on it and then music sort of introducing us to the environment or the world that we're about to sort of uh, experience um yeah. yeah that's really really good and symbolically the film actually ends with a white screen it does indeed yeah so i don't know if that can tie into the meaning of the film but it's de- definitely interesting yeah so we learned quite early on that uh, Amy's Amy Adams's character. Uh, what's her name? Louise Louise Banks. Louise Banks. I remember now. Um, yeah, Louise Banks is like a linguistics expert. <clears throat> so again, um, coming along from um, Close Encounters, the films. One of the film's central themes is communication and how um, how we communicate as a civilization and the how humanity. Uh, tackles the the problem of being able to talk with an alien race that doesn't share the same 
method of uh, of communication either it being like verbal or written or any other means of talking to one another and uh, so that's really a uh, really good starting point for like telling us exactly what the film's going to be about yeah so i just wanted to mention about how this film um manipulates time not just in the way that the, the story itself um sort of unfolds where louise banks like as she begins to learn the language of the heptapods she then begins to perceive time differently as a viewer watching the film time is manipulated in the way that the film is edited very cleverly so at the beginning of the film we think or understand that uh, amy adams's character has lost her child and then what we're seeing now is sort of post losing her daughter at least mm. that's how i understood it on my first viewing is that similar for you yeah yeah, yeah i think i think that's how it's supposed to be played out it sort of manipulates you into thinking that she's had a she's had a baby she's grown up and then she tragically dies before her time and then the events of uh, arrival are taking place after she's lost her child which we then obviously go on to learn that the these the events that we're shown are actual are actually from the future mm. and it's just very it's the whole sim the symbolic of the the language and the the weapon that they they call it um the tool that the heptapods give humanity in sort of dealing with everything i don't know how to describe it it's difficult to talk about language <laughs> and things like that what did you think of the design of of the heptapods in general yeah it's quite a strange design isn't it yeah because they're almost like the first time i saw it it made me think of um oh, what's the name of the hand from the adams family called is it called a thing have you seen the adams family yeah i can't remember you know the, the, the hand that scurries around yeah. everywhere i think it's yeah. called thing but i was just like all you see is like oh no they've got the seven fingers because they're heptapods or seven yeah. legs or so um it just made me think of that like just just the hand standing there and communicating it was it was quite funny but i really really liked the whole way that the the, the way that they're communicating um with with one another because you have like this glass screen where you can't get through it and they have these mm inky projections of what turns out to be words or some some form of uh scripture of some description yeah and uh it's that i've never seen anything like that on on in film before and it's a very new thing for like science fiction and film in general to have that sort of communication it's like someone's come up with the whole the the imagery for words in that way i found fascinating languages in general fascinate me like i'm quite not i'm lazy in that i don't know any other languages apart from english which is terrible <laughs> because the majority of the world can speak more than one you know um yeah they, they speak their, their their native language and then most other countries can speak english as well if not more than more than that and but i've always been fascinated by how we talk to each other as humans and how things can be misconceived when someone can have the intentions of meaning something else just through words because words can't always enough to convey how you feel and what what your intentions are with things and i think this film covers a lot of those sorts of 
themes uh, running through it. Obviously, we have the whole um, understanding whether they mean weapon as a as a threat or weapon as a tool and things yeah. like that. It's very very interesting to me. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it raises lots of philosophical questions about language. Um, like that example that she makes up about the kangaroo mm -hmm. and like uh, the natives thinking kangaroo means I don't know or something like that. That's right, yeah. Yeah. Which is it's a good way of conveying the point, even though she says it's not true. <laughs> yeah, I wish it was true, but... Um... Yeah that she, she gets a point across by saying this isn't true but you know what i'm saying yeah going back to the heptapods i just i'm absolutely fascinated by them they're um the uh <laughs> what's the names uh, ian and Lu uh, louise they name them abbott and costello yeah so i i didn't actually know who abbott and costello were until mm. i was doing research for this this podcast and they're named after some um sort of wartime entertainers um, yeah. called Bud, Bud Abbott and Lou Costello, um, who are sort of um, comedic entertainers on like um, in film and on the radio quite a lot during the wartime in the early 50s. And they were like the highest paid entertainers of the time. And they did a, um, a famous um, sort of comedy bit called Who's On First, which uh, uses a lot of wordplay and miscommunication to comedic effect effect um which cleverly sums up the scenario that louise and ian find themselves into try and talk to each other talk to these alien life forms and understand each other and i thought that was yeah. a really good like way of um sort of nodding to like that so yeah for sure and it also ties into something that i always think now when i'm watching this film is that the use of that white uh, screen or whatever it is window um, that can be seen like a metaphor for a cinema screen and how you know they're observing the the heptapods through that screen and they're trying to make sense of what's being shown um, I, I always found that fascinating because um, like it, it always reminds me of a quote that I think it was Martin Scorsese said about what screen actually means like when we think of a screen now we think of you know some image is projected on a screen and then we watch that yeah. image on the screen but the the origins of the word screen is like something that like obfuscates an image you know makes it less clear so like a smoke screen or um you know like a a screen in a doctor's office that kind of hides oh something. yeah yeah um so I was, I, I was always thinking about that watching arrival this this time round. um yeah i don't know how relevant it is but it just just made me think about screens and things like that yeah i think the film also has something to say about how a lot of the world powers on earth deal with conflict and situations that they're like deemed that could be threatening because there's a lot of there's a scene where like a soldier is watching what seems to be some sort of propaganda youtube channel yeah. of a guy like has like seems like he might be a, like an nra um sort of supporter because there's like rifles above like his uh his screen that is mm. being broadcast and it's very much like promoting the message of like um 
protect everything at all costs and shoot now and ask questions later and yeah sort of warmongering and things like that you know and i thought that was a really interesting maybe a little bit of a commentary that uh, denis villeneuve or whoever wrote the film i don't know who wrote the film um should have probably looked that one up but i know i know it's based on a short story okay um and I think in the short story, all of the stuff about the different nations and things like that isn't in the story. It's just all okay. about the, the aliens and the language. Okay. So yeah, that was probably something put in on purpose to sort of have something to say about sort of how sort of war and the military and things are perceived by by people and um, how it how it should be used and when how it shouldn't be used and stuff like so we have in the film like um china are, are basically all for sort of blowing them out of the sky to be honest and just erasing yeah. any any threat that may be coming their way even though they don't truly understand what's what's going on it's sort of like a way of saying like we don't understand what you are or what you're saying so therefore we're just going to destroy you and just we, if we don't understand you we're just going to get rid of you and uh yeah i found that a really interesting theme yeah for sure so i thought the there's a few they're they're not they're not plot holes because i don't think there are any but it's really interesting and quite trippy to think about the heptopods because they know that in the future that they're going to need help from humanity in like three thousand years i think they say yeah but that means that while they're having this conversation or trying to communicate with um louise and ian and the other people in the the shell that they know exactly what they're saying anyway because they have their perception of time is that they can see everything before and after and in the present moment that's happening and and then i was and then it makes me think well if they know <laughs> everything that's happening then they're just almost like going through the motions and the heptopops never even they never communicate to each other which I found really interesting as well. They're always side by side, but they never, they never seem to, or what we appear to perceive on screen is that they never seem to communicate to each other them, themselves. But mm. I don't think they need to because, as they know everything that's going to happen, they they know what their purpose is all the time, and they don't need to talk to someone because they know how events are going to unfold. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's because they're all knowing beings, almost like god type figures they don't need to communicate to 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 one another they just need to make this part of humanity in this segment of time in the circle because i really find it really interesting how like the way that time is used as being there's no start and no finish of time it's just one continuous circle their mm. communication and those inky images that they project are also circles it's really, really like the symbolism of that. I find absolutely brilliant, and the yeah. the, the the design choice on that was uh, was spot on. Yeah, it's it's very confusing to think about because if they're so they're coming to Earth and they can see what happens in the future, and yep. so if they can see what happens in the future, that should suggest that everything is predetermined and that the future cannot be changed. Hmm. Because if they're seeing one thing that happens in the future, then surely that means it can't be changed. So um, so they have to come to Earth to 
basically, ch- you know, change humanity, get humanity on their side. Yeah. But then so it, that was that was always going to happen. You exactly. Know? So when you're watching the film, it's it kind of like, it's kind of a bit deterministic because that was always going to happen. Therefore, where's the conflict, you know? Uh, yeah, I see what you're saying. Because it's... Cause as soon as they like, yeah, it's just very confusing. I don't, I don't know. It's I, made me very confused just now. <laughs> oh yeah. Now you're thinking about it. You're like, Hmm, actually you bring up these points, but I guess it comes into play with the whole, um, uh, what's, uh, uh, Louise decides to conceive a child and bring up a child, even though she knows that this child is going to die mm. way too young, but she's still like when um, Jerry Morena's character says, do you want to make a baby right at the end of the film, the closing lines? And she says, like, yes, I do. She's basically saying, I'm willing to go through all that pain and suffering to have, say, 15, 16 years with a, with my child. Yeah. And it, it's all predetermined because she knows what's going to happen, but she decides to go with it anyway. So, but she could you- say, no, I don't want to, but it, you, there's no changing it because it's just what's going to happen. So exactly, yeah. she she does have in that respect. She it's almost like an illusion of um, free will because yeah. she's like, oh, I know what's going to happen, yet I'm still choosing to do this. But then that's fulfilling the prophecy of what's going to happen anyway. What I don't get though is when she when she's on the phone to the Chinese uh, leader. Mm-hmm. And she's seeing her interaction with him in the future. Yeah. And her herself in the future has no recollection of that phone call. Because he's, he's telling her that, you know... You, you know called you, me or what? Yeah. I don't know, yeah, I don't know how you did it, but you called me and you mentioned my wife's dying last words. Yeah, because he gives her the phone number, doesn't he? Yeah. He's like, oh, because she wouldn't have known the number unless... I think it's just get, getting the point across about... Uh, the linearity of time and how everything's is, in, is like cyclical because yeah. she at the point when she makes the call she doesn't know the number but then she sort of taps into her memories and basically like a time stream of the future of him showing her the number mm-hmm. and then then in the past or in present time she then knows the number to then ring him even though at the point in the film where he's taught telling her about it she doesn't have any recollection of everything anything that's happened yet but then she starts to remember things as he's describing things to her it's all very much a a mind uh, trip but it's so uh, which which just makes me think that in the future when she does meet him then is she going to react the same way or is she going to know what he's talking about do do you know what i mean (laughs) yeah oh now you've opened up a can of worms because like if she's if she's going into the future, if if the future's sort of like a loop or whatever, then when she actually lives that point in life, what's that interaction going to be like? Is it? It can't be exactly the same because she's going to know what he's talking about because they spoke mm. on the phone. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's just very. I, I mean, I think it's something that we can't actually grasp. As in, yeah, like, I think it, so. It's what we'd call a plot hole, maybe. But I don't know. There's no way to do it without that plot hole. <laughs> I know what you're saying. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, well, I, I've, we've only really uncovered it by having this discussion. Like, it's not something that's evident when you watch it. Cause some films you can watch and you go, "Well, mm. well, how did that happen?" Or that doesn't, that can't happen because of this. But when you, you know, you don't really 
notice that at least it took me well i've watched it three times and i didn't notice that yeah seemingly plot hole (laughs) and it's um it's like if she so at that point in her life now when she understands the language and she can seemingly move to different points in her life what's preventing her from moving back into her life and conveying that knowledge to someone else you know I'm confused now. I'm, I'm, I'm very, very confused. <laughs> <laughs> I need to watch it again. Oh, no. I mean, this is this is why people always say anything to do with time travel in any sort of sense is just Flawed. very, very hard to get your head around. Yeah. Um, but it's not time travel, though, is it? Because she's not time traveling anywhere. It's it's making... The, the, the film is basically saying that time is non-linear which is under we can sort of it's difficult to grasp but you could the basic concept of that you can go okay time's non-linear there's like time is eternal there's no beginning and end of time it's just one big circle that Mm -hmm. doesn't start anywhere on that circle sort of like a mobius strip you never know where it begins and ends um so by saying that i've lost my train of thought but yeah it's just like she so she maybe she's not time traveling but she can, yeah that's right yeah she can see into her future or she can experience that's right some, so something in the future her physical being isn't moving into the past or the future it's mm. just her her experiences that she has at some point on her time stream if you want to call it she's able to tap into that because of the way that she's learned the language of the heptapods and she now understands how they um, perceive time so so what i initially took it as was that she could look into her future and experience her future as she would experience it in that moment Mm. which which is why when she's speaking to the chinese leader it doesn't make sense to me that she doesn't recollect that phone call because if she was experiencing her future it's almost like she would observe herself in the future yeah i know what you're saying it's 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 very very complex yeah so the when um the chinese general when he Mm -hmm. um tells uh louise about what his wife said on her deathbed sort is sort of like a lost in translation moment where like he whispers into her ear but you never truly hear what he's saying but the the um i don't know who the writer is but i read that the writer wanted that to be the the what he whispers into louise's ear he wanted it to be included in the film but De- denis villeneuve wanted it to be like sort of a secret but i believe in the script it does say what he what he whispers into louise's ear uh, I don't know if you wanted to know. Yeah. Okay. So just in case you you, you wanted to keep that a mystery. Um, so to, to uh, the exact quote, I can't remember, but it's to the effect of in war, there are no winners. Um, no, war doesn't make winners. It makes widows. Hmm. So, which is really interesting in like a- appealing to this uh, Chinese general who is basically from, from, what happens in the film is hell-bent on basically blowing this alien spacecraft out of, out of the sky and is all for like total war basically and then when he hears this sort of um quote he sort of changes it what changes his mind and back backs down from um basically causing like an all-out apocalypse essentially 
Yeah. And it's a, it's quite an interesting quote to put into the context of the film in that like war doesn't really solve anything and like violence and conflict it just doesn't create anything it only destroys things so mm. what got me thinking watching it this time around is the implications of this after the fact so how how does the world go on after this because you see glimpses of it when she's seeing the future and she's she's like a lecturer and she's lecturing yeah. people on how to understand the language but if people have that ability to glimpse into the future and they can just do it freely surely that has major implications on how we live as a society because oh. anything with an outcome that we don't know or anything random surely there's an ability to kind of see that before it happens so any kind of competition like a sports game mm -hmm. or the lottery or stock markets or anything would just totally almost cease to exist because you can already see the outcome before it happens like i, I yeah. couldn't even imagine what would happen after that yeah civilization would break down wouldn't it yeah surely because then surely everyone can see their last day on earth mm -hmm. um yeah so oh, I, I think I, we've I, opened up a can of worms here mate <laughs> yeah we have <laughs> i didn't even think about any of this before we had this conversation yeah but it's definitely going to make me think about it now and i'll rewatch yeah. it again in the future mm. because that's always been a problem philosophically with the concept of free will versus determinism Mm -hmm. is that if you can see into the future and you know for a fact something is going to happen in the present you'll feel like oh well if that's going to happen i don't need to do anything because it's definitely going to happen yeah so psychologically how would that affect you if if you know what's going to happen you feel like you don't need to do anything to make it happen yet you still physically have to do something to make it happen. Yeah, I guess it would change. Being able to understand that language and perceive time differently, you would, essentially, your consciousness would change and you wouldn't mm. be... It's like saying, if you knew that, but you still had your way of perceiving the world and time and, and the universe in your sort of your old frame of mind, you, mm. would break, you wouldn't be able to cope with it. It's like similar to how... Um, in the film there's um some of the people that go into the shell they like come out like throwing up or in yeah. these in these containers or like um medical vacuum packs or whatever they're called and like um, forrest whitaker's character is like yeah some people just can't process these experiences but if you um once you're able to perceive things the way the heptapods heptapods do then you would maybe not be have the same way of perceiving everything so yeah in, in do you know what i'm saying like if you were then perceive things the way they do that sort of stuff wouldn't matter to you because of the way you see everything yeah. is completely altered because obviously the heptapods are, are, are functioning perfectly fine you know they're getting on fine with their seven-legged body things mm. you know traveling through the universe or whatever they're doing um so yeah maybe that's just maybe that's a way of looking at it i'm True. not sure yeah yeah like you'd have some kind of paradigm shift where things that you might be focused on now like i don't know success or money or or just living day to day 
you, it might change your outlook completely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, isn't it? <laughs> I wonder if anyone's written anything on this. Like, if there's any articles or any deep dives on Reddit about the the this. I don't want to say plot holes, but sort of the the, the things that could be analysed about the, the the elements of sort of being able to perceive your life at any mm-hmm. point from the present and stuff. I'd be interested to see if anyone's yeah. done a deep dive on that. I might look at that up after we've finished here. Yeah. We didn't really talk about it when we were talking about close encounters, but I should have mentioned that I'm almost to the point of being obsessed about aliens and the possibility of, you know, alien life, you know, just, just thinking about it all the time. Like I'm not one of these people that's like a, a UFO believer and I believe I've been abducted or anything like that. But, you know, just, just, just reading into people's theories about the potential for there to be some kind of intelligent civilization out there. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, what do you, what do you think? You know, if someone asks you, do you believe in aliens, for example, how do you answer that question? I would say, yeah, the, the universe is way too big for the, us to be the only life forms out there. Mm. Um, whether we'd in the sort of the time span of like the solar system being around, whether that, that intelligent life ever comes into contact with us, I don't know, probably not. But I think, yeah, the universe is way too vast and expansive for there to just be us out there, whether they're, whether we're the most advanced out there or whether there's you know life completely different to us out there somewhere i don't know i can't say if there's like spacecraft flying around out there or whether aliens have visited us earth before or anything but yeah with in terms of like there being life somewhere else other than on earth i think yeah there's 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 too much out there for us to be the only only ones yeah well if we if we believe scientifically if if our th- current theory is that the universe is expanding and it the universe is infinite then by the definition definition of infinite then surely there is an you know an intelligent civilization out there mm-hmm. um i mean by the definition of infinite that means that everything that could happen will happen mm-hmm. um, which is a very complex thing to the the concept of infinity is i think something we can't actually wrap our heads around no um like we we take infinity to you know easily mean something that's continuous and goes on forever but grasping the kind of um you know what that could mean is is just too complex for humans i think yeah we'll never yeah. understand it no um, but I love reading about theories of like potential civilizations out there and, um, yeah, just looking up to the sky. <laughs> I probably sound like a nut job now. No, it's all, it's all good. <laughs> all, yeah. all, the, all the listeners will, will uh, if you've got any theories, anyone who's listening want to email in about what you think mm. about, um, aliens and if there's life out there beyond, um, beyond our reach then uh yeah let us know what you think and whether you think um elliot's talking rubbish or not <laughs> yeah <laughs> cool so um do you have any other thoughts on arrival one thing that's been that sticks out to me on repeated viewings it is something about the filmmaking not about the actual 
story or concept is you know there's that bit in the middle where out of nowhere um they kind of skip forward a bit in time and there's like this voiceover with jeremy renner like yeah explaining that always sticks out to me as kind of being a bit strange um do you reckon they did it just to uh, help the audience along maybe yeah it's just mm. very strange that it's him explaining it mm. and not amy adams and um there's just a lot of exposition and that's like an exposition dump like they're explaining a lot in this short period of time through this montage and voiceover um maybe there was no other way for them to to drive the story story forward um but i don't know that bit just always sticks out to me i'm just like it, it feels i don't want to say lazy because what do i know about filmmaking um but compared to the pace of the film before that it seems very blunt and on the nose because a lot a lot a lot of the editing before that is really really good because for example the first time when they go into the spacecraft and they're just about to start start talking with the heptapods and then it instantly cuts away to them in the in the shower afterwards being like sprayed down mm -hmm. in any other film they would probably show that first encounter but they decide not to show it and it's it's holding that suspense it's it's almost like kind of like what hitchcock would do where like you know someone's got a gun but the character doesn't know there's a gun it's kind of like yeah. withholding the information from yeah the sure it, it builds the suspense so i think that filmmaking is really really good um but just that bit in the middle with that bit of exposition i don't know it just it, it always sticks out to me um, yeah talking about exposition there's um like it brings to um my mind um another science fiction film that i really enjoyed that i know it's not um revered that much amongst like i don't know film enthusiast circles but i really enjoy it anyway and that's um christopher nolan's um interstellar yeah and so that film i think is fantastic but it has a big problem with exposition dumps yeah well, and... that's, that, that's, a, that's a common criticism of all of his films yeah um, that, I, I've, um, I've not i've not seen tenet yet but i know that's a common criticism of that one is that there's so much theory and exposition and ex explaining of concepts that apparently at some point it's just not fun and it's just totally confusing um, yeah, yeah de def definitely an interstellar yeah i i yeah the 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 way that film looks and the general themes and some of the action sequences and stuff and the, and the acting performances are really liking that film and it's a film i re re will revisit i've seen it a number of times but every time we get some sort of like explanation about like time travel or um how they travel like at the speed of light or things like that when things are literally sort of drawn on a whiteboard <laughs> to explain to us how things are going to happen i i i my i switch off and i don't i just don't understand why some filmmakers feel the need to hold the hands of their audiences like people are a lot cleverer than some filmmakers give their audience credit for mm. and it's just unnecessary and i think that film would be largely improved if it didn't have 
it also has some really um corny dialogue in it as well yeah um but um yeah if it didn't have some of those um glaringly cheesy lines in it and the excessive amounts of um um, exposition that film would be stellar like really really great film oh, i really I like enjoy the, it anyway I, like playing words. I know i thought i thought you'd pick up on that you did you like <laughs> uh, i uh but yeah that's how i feel about that i like i'd probably give interstellar like i don't know like four stars out of five yeah and it's I, let down no i was gonna say i really like that film and mm. I've, I've seen it about four times mm. i think and I saw it when it came out in the cinema and I was just getting into like watching lots and lots of films. So I, I was exploring like classic cinema, world cinema. And I don't know why, but when I was getting into films, I took a very like snobby approach. And like, there was lots of films that people would talk about that were mainstream. And I don't know, instinctively, I would take a disliking to them. I, I don't know why. Um, this is something that I don't have anymore, but I can look back and see that flaw. And initially I hated Interstellar. Okay. Um, I'd, I'd recently watched 2001 at the time mm -hmm. and I loved that. Um, and like watching Interstellar, I couldn't get past thinking that it was like a really corny Hollywood play on, t on 2001. Um, yeah chris nolan was very much influenced by that yeah he's gone because he did the um the restoration he was involved in the mm. restoration for the 50th anniversary wasn't he of 2001 yeah, he um yeah. so you can tell he's he's very invested in that film and undoubtedly was very much inspired when he was making um interstellar yeah but yeah, but yeah I, I don't know why for whatever reason at the time i i i didn't like it but i've, I've since watched it lots of times and i really really like it now um, despite its flaws <laughs> yeah despite its flaws because there are there are definitely flaws um and yeah going back to arrival something i've just thought of as well um is uh, i know some people say that denis villeneuve he has um almost like a bit of a um he, he does things sometimes a bit like tarkovsky um, okay. and, I, and i and i don't really see it an awful lot but in arrival sometimes i kind of get what people mean in that tarkovsky would make these films which would be classed as science fiction but the focus was never actually on the the big science fiction premise so mm -hmm. with stalker and solaris they're films that look much more at humans and what it means to be human and i think arrival definitely does that and mm -hmm. i think Blade Runner 2049 definitely does that as well. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I, I thought I'd just chuck that in there. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> so uh, if you have no more thoughts, uh, where, where would you rank this among uh, Villeneuve's other work? It's a tough one, actually. Because um, I know from um, your, I think you covered it on your podcast with your dad versus world cinema. I'm not sure. Yeah you did um on sondi is that right mm -hmm. yeah yeah so i know you're on from uh watching that listening to that i know that you're, you're quite a big fan of that film but yeah. yeah yeah i'd probably yeah on sondi might be my favorite actually um it's hard to pick though because I, I think all of his films are great that i've seen um but yeah on sondi would probably be top 
then I think Sicario is one that I just really love. And, and I know Sicario is not a lot of people's favourite, but I don't know, that first cinema experience just stuck mm. in my mind. It's such a memorable experience for me. Um, maybe Arrival would be my third favourite. But cool. then but then Blade Runner, I really like Blade Runner. Yeah. And then Prisoners is really, really good. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> They're all good. He's had a good, really good run of films. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say that this is my favourite of his, um, mm. echoing what you say. Um, I feel like the majority of the time when when you're going to be on the podcast, we're going to because we share so many passions for similar filmmakers and (laughs) and things. It's quite it's quite unreal, really, where some of our tastes are so closely aligned. Yeah, and they're the best kind of tastes as well. Of course, they are. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I would say that this is my favourite. Villeneuve film mainly because of the emotional impact I think like if yeah. a film is able if like if a film is able to make me really think like on a like a philosophical level or is able to like hit me emotionally for instance make me cry which this film did mm-hmm. on on multiple viewings um or if a film can make me laugh um then then it's got something going for it, in my opinion, because if it can make me feel something or make me think deeply about some some theme or something about myself or make me think about things in a different way, then, then the film has done something and then it's had an impact on my life. And that's what I want from films. I want to experience different things and different points of view and to laugh and to cry and things like that. So... Um, yeah. yeah, this film made me think a lot and it made me cry. So I really, really, really love this film. And even though we've just pointed out lots of potential flaws in its plot. <laughs> yeah, but that's, I mean, every film has flaws, really. Yeah, of course Even Even Barry Lyndon has flaws, I'll admit that. What? <laughs> Listeners, you heard it here first. Elliot Cohen yeah. has said that Barry Lyndon has flaws. <laughs> yeah, I, the, the one flaw is that it's not long enough. That's, that's Oh, what I mean. wow. That's a terrible yeah. flaw. <laughs> Yeah, but no, like we always say that, you know, films affect you, can affect you differently at different points in your life. And I'm sure, you know, Arrival might affect me even more, maybe, you know, further down the line in life. Mm -hmm. I imagine being, being a parent probably adds a lot to the weight of the film. And then I think maybe, maybe, you know, having, not to get too heavy, but having an experience of, you know, grief, losing someone to a disease very close to you probably would add a lot to this as well. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I've had that conversation with someone about annihilation, um, mm-hmm. which, which I guess is again, is a science fiction film that deals with very human issues. Um, you know, that's all about like cancer and disease. And I'm sure that strikes some people a lot more than other people just because, sure. of, you, because of your own experience. Cool. So yeah, <laughs> awesome. I'll end, end it on that cheery note. I'll end it on a high note. Well done, pal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so uh, let's just have a brief discussion about the films as a pairing. So uh, yeah, what what sort of common themes we've touched on it through talking about the films individually? But yeah, what common themes run through each of the films? Um, I guess common theme would be language. Mm-hmm. how in close encounters the language they use is music and color whereas in in this in arrival it's very much more about language itself and you know written language and spoken language um 
so that's obviously a big theme i guess and then yeah just the broader theme of the unknown and you know you know thematic questions about what it means to be human and what our position in the in the universe is yeah it's also yeah. about the both films have a, a a desire for knowledge a quest for knowledge as mm. so you have roy is like obviously obsessed with finding out what, what the sort of visions and things that he's having and in in the rival all the nations are scrambling to sort of decipher the codes that these heptapods are giving them and they just they won't talk to each other because they're they're afraid of like not giving up too much information it's yeah. almost like coveting coveting uh like wisdom or something not passing it on it's like a downfall of humanity it will be mm. probably not not working together yeah and actually with arrival it, that kind of delineates it a bit more not just the search of knowledge but what is the correct type of knowledge to look for because they have that discussion about um jeremy renner being a scientist and wanting to ask questions about you know maths and how the universe works and amy adams is more like no you've got to work out how to interact with them and work out their language and their names and things like that time is a yeah. common theme that runs through them both so we have obviously the the understanding the heptapods language allows you to perceive time differently as we see through amy adams's experiences and then we also have time in um close encounters where various people from different um parts of through it seems recent history have been sort of abducted by the alien spacecraft and then they've been returned to to earth um seemingly unaged so they're, they're exactly the same sort of condition that they were when they disappeared say 30 years ago and they come back and they're exactly the same and it just brings to like into question like do these these alien civilizations experience time the same way that we do here on earth and there's a very similar similar very there's a good comparison there between the perception of time and how time uh, like affects uh, you as a human between the two films. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I think that's about all I can think of in yeah, terms of yeah. They're quite, they're quite, they're quite. Um, the the themes start like are pretty pronounced. I think um, you don't have to dig too deeply underneath the surface to know exactly what the uh, the themes that the films are tackling mm. so do you think this is do you think this is a good pairing and why do you think it's a good pairing i think it is a good pairing i think compared to the other two conversations we've had the pairing might not be as strong because i feel like the the other two we've done have been very strong connections mm -hmm. um but yeah it's definitely a good pairing because like we just said there's a lot about language and searching for knowledge and obviously both films being about aliens um there's a lot in common for sure <clears throat> which order would you watch them in would you watch uh, them the way would you watch them close encounters then arrival or arrival then close encounters yeah i'd probably watch close encounters then arrival yeah um because i th i think arrival is a better film mm -hmm. and i think going from arrival to close encounters you might think that you know it's not as uh 
substantial <laughs> maybe coming coming from what is discussed in arrival like the themes and you know how serious that film is and it's kind of mind-blowing that film when you watch it for the first time mm-hmm. then you, you might go to close encounters and it's all rather a bit straightforward maybe i know what you're saying yeah 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 so i'd probably recommend yeah close encounters first build yourself yeah. up to arrival yeah i agree and i think there are differences as well that allow the the pairing to complement each other so while at least through my interpretation i felt that close encounters had some religious undertones to it whereas um arrival has a much more sort of spiritual and emotional approach to the content in it yeah so it's sort of like the two halves of like the religious and sort of the non-religious but still being connected in some way that is bigger than yourself um so yeah it's a nice nice little nice little pairing i think there um but yeah i agree with you i think that arrival is the superior film and is uh, one that i'll i'll definitely re-watch more um in years later in my life are there any other films that you can think of that would complement complement these films there's some glaring ones that we've touched on such as 2001 and yeah. uh, and interstellar is something that i could see pa- being paired with one of these films yeah and maybe yeah maybe annihilation you could pair oh with yeah that's a, that's a good show um yeah i'm not too sure i've never actually seen contact i was going to mention that as another one yeah that's that's I'm another back. film that's really interesting that's quite flawed in places but the the, the the themes and the way it's executed it was pretty good for the most part i actually watched that for the first time about uh, four years ago on the plane to america it was on one of those tiny little screens you know when yeah. you're sitting on a plane um so i didn't i didn't intake the film in the best quality or the most uh, the most ideal environment but i feel i am um, I got the gist of the film and I enjoyed it well enough anyway, but that was definitely got a lot of similarities that um, could be taken between um, particularly um, uh, Arrival more than uh, Close Encounters. Hmm. But um, it's worth a watch, I, th- I think, but not one you should probably yeah. put on like the top of your watch list. Mm. Other than that, I can't really think of many. <laughs> a totally no different kind of different kind of film independence day <laughs> that's like the total antithesis of arrival isn't it oh my god it's <laughs> literally the opposite yeah. it's aliens coming to blow the crap out of us as yeah, opposed we've, to we've got to giving us information uh, i could understand someone who's like a super huge independence day fan and just wants explosions and gunfire mm. and death could might not enjoy arrival because it's quite like action free really there's some tension in it but there's like no really any action sequences or set pieces to be honest yeah but um, oh, an- another great one is yeah. the the day the earth stood still the, the original ne- film at least never seen um, it yeah oh it's great the original one from i think it's 1951 um it's basically very much like arrival an alien comes to earth um and they're trying to work out what this craft is and yeah it's actually very similar when i think about it hmm. cool yeah. right then i guess that will wrap it up for this episode of uh let's watch two podcast 
Uh, if you want to get in contact with us, please, please do. Uh, we're here. Um, you can email into us. Uh, let's watch two at gmail.com. If you have any thoughts about any of the episodes that we've, um, we've recorded and, uh, if you have any recommendations for any future double features that we could cover, um, and whether you think that aliens exist <laughs> and what you think of uh, Elliot's thoughts on that, if you want, that's fine. Um, you can follow me, um, personally on Instagram, uh, at film blogger, Sam, and there's an underscore between the, the words there. And I also have a budding YouTube channel, which is still in its infancy. I've not got many videos on there, but that's also under film blogger, Sam. So where can people find you, Elliot? Yeah, I'm on Instagram as well, um, at Elliot Cohen Films. And then I'm also on YouTube, uh, Boutique Blu-rays with Elliot Cohen, because I did a bit of a name change. Yeah, I had a rebranding. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, not a total rebranding, though. I think hopefully people still kind of, you know, weren't totally alienated when I changed the name. No, I don't think so. No. But yeah. That's where you can or, find me. Awesome. Well, if, uh, if you made it this far, thanks for listening, everyone. And um, Elliot will be back, I'm sure, on another, another podcast in the future. So uh, until then, um, take care, guys. Yeah, keep watching the skies. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>